Today's episode is a special bonus episode airing on a weekend with no ads, and it's a conversation that I had with Will Larson and Uma Chengunde. It's a conversation that we had at Stripe about Will's book, An Elegant Puzzle, which is about engineering management. And I also spoke with Will on the Software Engineering Daily podcast a few weeks back. So if you're interested in An Elegant Puzzle, you can listen back to that episode. And I also recommend checking out the book. It's got a lot of advice on engineering management and strategies for scaling a software organization. Will has worked at Uber, he's worked at Stripe, and he's got a lot of wisdom in that book that I haven't heard in other places. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Will Larson and Uma Chingunde. Hey folks, I'm Will Larson, the author of an elegant puzzle, and we're here to talk a little bit about some questions that we've gotten from you all about the book. And we definitely know how Instagram works and are very professional at this, and we will definitely put together a polished production here. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Uma. I support an engineering team here at Stripe. Uh, we do lots of cool things on the infrastructure side, such as something, something Kubernetes, Envoy, all the words. Thank you. I'm Jeff Meyerson. I run Software Engineering Daily, which is a podcast about software engineering. The first question we're going to get into is from the Amy Code on Twitter, and it's about how do you lead without kind of management authority? How do you lead um, with just the quality of your personal work? And so love to hear some thoughts about this one. I think uh, I'm actually going to refer back to something that you shared in your book, which I think is a really useful construct, which is the model document share. I thought I've I've personally referenced that quite a bit for folks that haven't used the that haven't read the book. It's essentially the idea where you run something as an experiment and model the the idea or the behavior that you want to see, and then you document it and you share it. And I think this is actually a very useful practice. I've seen this used very effectively uh, in many different scenarios. So I think the most powerful thing in kind of how you want to effect change is this tool. What I've seen in terms of having influence and leadership is largely setting an example in in any context. Basically, if you're setting a good example, whether you do so quietly or uh, in a way that that gets people's uh, uh, explicit attention or intention intended attention. Um, that's how leadership actually works in practice. Um, you know, if, you, if you're not setting an example um, in a loud way, um, just setting an example, you'll be differentiated over time, and people will will pay attention, and uh, and you'll have influence over uh, over an organization. Something you just said that really resonates is this idea of kind of setting an example, and it won't necessarily translate immediately into results. I think as you're thinking about working through without authority, your time frame has to be a little bit different. You're looking at changing the culture, the, the behaviors, but it won't be this immediate, do this, this is the result. You have to start looking at your impact over you know months or, or years to the, the team, the company around you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, some... Another kind of question that I had, and it's kind of like resonated a lot with me, was the topic of career narratives that you talk a bit in your book. If you could maybe elaborate on that. Well, personally, I'm kind of excited to hear about the career narrative of someone who is, uh, in large part, a professional podcaster, which is not a career that I imagine you go to 
college to kind of get your, your podcaster degree. Although I'm sure you can get a podcasting degree somewhere um, and they'll sell you that, they'll sell you anything. Um, but personally, something I've been thinking about a lot is just like how, how easy it is to think about your career as something that's very short and constrained. And I think they're so easy to find folks who would say that they're kind of at the end of their tech career when they're like six years in, seven years in, you know, God forbid, you know, 10 years into your tech career. But really, we're, we're just getting started and kind of keeping that beginner's mindset about how much there's left to learn and how kind of few of our decisions are actually trapdoor. It's so rare that you can make a decision about your career today that's going to define the kind of permanent outcome for you that you can't make again next year in a different way or you can't make again next six years in three different ways. So I, I really think it because a lot of us are kind of earlier in a career, we start looking at these things as kind of permanent decisions. But really over the course of like 30, 35 years, you can redo anything multiple times and there's actually a lot of flexibility in how we plan our careers and, and live our lives around our careers. Yeah. Um, I think um, what's important is for particularly engineers who have a lot of uh, latitude in the direction they want their career to take, uh, it's important to define your own narrative and to uh, repeatedly take a step back and evaluate what you actually want in your life and what you want in, in your career and what you want your, uh, you know, your, your tombstone to read. Um, because, uh, you know, if, if you, if you just kind of adhere to narratives that are given to you, then oftentimes you're going to, uh, get entrapped by narratives that, that benefit other people <clears throat> more than, than you. Um, and one example of this, one reason that I kind of stopped working for, uh, a lot of the, you know, I, I, you know this, my last job was, was at Amazon. And one of the reasons I just like did the, the, it didn't really resonate with me was just this idea that you go from, you enter as this entry level peon, you're doing, you know, just terrible work. It's not interesting. Uh, and not everybody, you know, goes through this and not everybody feels this way, but, um, and then you're, you're given this track that you can follow where like you go from entry level engineer to SDE one and SDE two, and then like, then maybe you're a manager or then maybe you're SDE three, or then maybe you can be a hallowed principal engineer. And just this whole like climbing the ladder thing with a eight year vision of, you know, it's just unrealistic. Um, you know, it, I mean, it, a lot of people actually do fall into that and it fits, the, it fits their, it makes them comfortable. That's, that's the, the, um, you know, the, the, the path that they want to get on. That's the career narrative that they want to believe in. Um, but I think it's actually quite pernicious, um, on a utilitarian, like overall, um, sense, because I think it would be better if, if people were more encouraged to find their own career narrative and given the proper philosophies uh, and, and open-mindedness to, uh, to find that, that path that resonates with them the most. Curious to ask both of you, um, talking about this eight-year career path, like how similar are your goals from three years ago to your goals today? Do they have anything in common? I think that's, I was thinking this uh, earlier. 
as well when I first started thinking about my career narrative, which is it's actually very interesting when you look back to like the eight or 10 years in my career, which is I think one of the things that is really interesting about our industry and tech overall is how much things are constantly changing. So when I started working, uh, my first programming language was C. I graduated to C++ and I would never have imagined that what I was doing then is actually very, very different from what I'm doing now. So I think just even being very aware that what you think are your options now are not actually what will necessarily be open or available to you in the future is something that's kind of uh, really has uh, kind of been an interesting thing for me to learn. So my, it is completely, yes, my goals have been completely different. And I think one of my own things as I think of career narratives is going back to your point earlier, which is trying not to be too constrained and always actually thinking of all the possibilities and not trying to have a very narrow set or not trying to climb a career ladder as much. And so something that I try to reflect back on is more what are the kind of building blocks that I want in my career versus focusing too much on a particular path or a particular straight and narrow ladder. Uh, one of the reasons I thoroughly love Stripe is Stripe totally changed how I thought about the opportunities I have as a developer. Um, I, I mean, this is like why the company was so revolutionary was <clears throat> the idea that you can have a simple payments API and you could have payments be programmatic. Like the idea that, that that's something a developer actually really needs to fulfill their, their dreams of, of having dynamic programmatic um, money and to build like very sophisticated transaction systems because developers can oftentimes imagine very sophisticated economic models in their brains that they may not have fully fleshed out. And, you know, if, if, if they have this simple API that creates an abstraction for dealing with money, it lets them think through their economic model uh, with a lot more focus. And so... Uh, having that piece of infrastructure totally changed like w what I feel is available to me. So I just use that as an example of I'm always reconsidering. Like this happened again recently when I first started kind of understanding what Airtable was. Like and just talking to people about Airtable and like okay, Airtable. So it's this proprietary piece of spreadsheet software that you can use as a programming system. Like how does that change my life as a developer like it's not a programming language it's it's more like a visual editor thing like should i be using this like should you be using this should you be building entire back-end microservices things off of Airtable? like who knows and it's fun to reevaluate that on a regular basis did, did either of you use hypercard like the no <laughs> uh, so I, I i think i interviewed the guy that made that one time uh, I think that was a uh, uh, what's his name, the inventor of WikiWikiWeb. Anyway, I, I haven't I haven't like used Ward it. Cunningham. Yes, Ward Cunningham. Uh, I don't really remember much about that, but it it's 
when he talked about it, it sounded like it it was a revolutionary technology when it was first invented. So, so like the the joy of like HyperStack is it's or HyperCard rather is this technology running on any like uh, really old classic Mac that you could do anything on. There were people who were like accountants who were building their own like accounting software businesses that were running it. And it was just this like really simple piece of software that. Um, I, as a child, was able to do very useful things like make blink repeatedly to kind of a strobe light and other high-value kind of operations. But it was just the kind of the, the ability to have these simple primitives you can compose in kind of creative ways that can actually like run a business. And that's where I see kind of things like hyper, um, HyperCard, but then also things like Airtable and things like Stripe kind of being so, so additive in like un, unexpected ways. Well, it's funny because, you know, the as a as a uh, you know when you're kind of learning computer science, the first way that you think about these things is in terms of data structures or new programming languages. But more recently, it's become like new products. Like new products are the primitives that we're putting together and the things that are filling us with new ideas, um, which is exciting. Maybe that's always been the case, but for me, it's felt like a paradigm shift since since leaving college. I don't know about about y'all, but I think it's it's kind of like I see I I think of it as happening in waves. Like the last the two thousands were the wave in which you kind of like the operating system became commoditized and like AWS and Azure and GCP essentially made like you know compute as a primitive just became like available cheaply and easily over the internet. And that kind of was the building block that now makes all of these other things possible. So this is we're essentially like adding platforms on top of each other. So because all the lower platforms are now so easily available, now you have Airtable and Stripe and these higher level platforms. And if eventually I think that's like going to continue happening. So here's a question for both of you. Um, as we move to this newer area where we're not as much choosing like software frameworks. I mean, we are choosing software frameworks. We're choosing, you know, Kubernetes versus Mesos or like Go versus Rust or whatever. But just as importantly, we're choosing from these strange new abstract tools. We're cho choosing from Airtable, you know, maybe like you look at Retool and you're like, that's, that man, that could be pretty useful. But who, who's going to be in charge of that? Like who is, is, do we have a Retool team? Do we need a Retool team? And more abstractly, like, how are we choosing these tools? Do we have a vendor selection team? Do we need do we need some new roles? Do we need like a software sampler type of role? Like a person whose just full-time role is like basically you just watch product hunt every day and you download every tool. Well not download, why am I saying download? You try out every tool on product hunt. I don't know. Does 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 the cornucopia of new productivity and SaaS and platform as a service tools. How does that change our roles as engineers and our team structures? Yeah. Who is the wire cutter of new technology? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think my, my theory looking at the tools that have kind of really taken off is that they tend to often just be like Stripe, like, you know, they kind of tend to be popular word of mouth by developers. So the people using the tools are really then, a really good tool is one that is evangelized by its users. And if you look at all the ones that have been successful recently, like all the SaaS-based tools, Stripe, Slack, 
like you know dropbox it's all things that kind of really started as like people just started using them and as they moved from place to place would would take those tools and have like you know introduce them to their new workplaces or their new teams or their friends and families and i think that's really what i see tends to happen like tools just go viral almost this is a really interesting kind of line of thinking, right? So the, the public cloud is expanding further and further up, where more and more of the work that we're doing or that is not work that we would have been able to focus on like five years ago as the public cloud expands further and further towards us. Um, the reality is for most businesses, like your biggest risk is like you're not going to be a business next year. Um, and it's like far less important, I think, that you have kind of continuity around your like vendors early on as you're getting more and more mature, all of a sudden having the ability to manage risk responsibly gets more and more important. So I, I really do think um, what I'm seeing and I think what is kind of inconsistent in, in the industry is when you're small, you have no redundancy. You just try to get to fit. And then as the business becomes like a thing of value where there's actually value to protect versus opportunity to uncover, then you start adding more and more of this resiliency. And to me, kind of the interesting question is, a variant of kind of where we're going, which is like, what's not on the public cloud uh, 10 years from now? Is there anything left or does the public cloud just swallow kind of all of these products? Is Airtable now like AWS Airtable mm. and, and so on? Mm. So shifting, shifting kind of themes a little bit. So earlier we talked a little bit about careers, um, kind of flipping it though, how do we know if we're actually training people well? Like one of the most important things we can do for onboarding is making it easier for folks to come productive at our companies. But really hard to find a company that feels like they've nailed onboarding. Even harder to find a company that feels like they have like the one true metric, which is like the onboarding is in fact working. The, the number is up and to the right. Um, other than hiring, which is I think sometimes used as a proxy metric, but is not I think the right quality measure for onboarding. How, how should we measure this? I think I'll reflect back to my most recent onboarding. So that was at Stripe a year and a half ago. I think Stripe actually does a really, really great job with onboarding. And I think one of the most important thing is actually, which I see, this is really basic, but not all companies do it, which is to actually have a very well thought out and very intentional onboarding. I think there's almost like sometimes a little bit of an idea, which is like, you know, all the hard work is done. Now you show up and like you figure out how to like, you know, make yourself productive. And I think just shifting from that mindset to actually having a very intentional onboarding is a huge shift. Uh, some things that I think kind of are metrics, one is actually asking the people that were in the onboarding as to how they feel, like at, you know, 30 days, at 90 days, and actually collecting that feedback, and then constantly iterating over that onboarding process. So just doing it and refreshing it and getting feedback over and over again is I think one of the most powerful things. So. Playing on Uma's question a little bit, how have you evolved your process of onboarding guests to your podcast? Ooh. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I mean, initially it was sending a lot of emails to people and just like begging them to come on the show, but then eventually it, it over time it's flipped and I you know a lot of people just kind of send me emails or I get references or people suggest hey you really should do this um, or like something is at the top of Hacker News and I see it and I that I'm like okay I need to interview this person and their email address is public fortunately um, 
and then I just send them an email and I'm like, Hey, you want to come on the show? Like I prepare a lot of questions and stuff beforehand. And, um, and I send them a calendar invite that includes like basically a page's worth of information. Um, you know, the most important information is at the top of the calendar invite because most people aren't going to read through this entire thing. But like, if like I interviewed a guy this morning who did the whole setup that I recommended, he like bought the mic that I requested. He actually did this thing where you set up pillows like next to your mic. Uh, which I have like at the bottom of the, I was, you know, the bottom of this really long calendar invite where it's like, if you're still reading this, here's an additional tip. You can get these pillows and just like line them up and then it's like you're in a soundproof room. Um, and, you know, some people do that, which is awesome. So I kind of try to make it, um, you know, optional for how much work. Like, it's like, you know, you can sit down with your, with your laptop and we can do like a, you know, low quality sound because you still hear podcasts that are extremely successful where the audio quality doesn't you know it's not that great um because there's still like way too few podcasts so like the, the competition is just not that stiff yet um uh, so sound quality is actually not the most important thing um so yeah, it's, it's not too tough. Like these days, all you need is like pretty good internet connection, um, which sometimes you don't even have that. Um, you know, so you have them do a client side backup and then it's like you can barely hear when they're actually talking, but like you kind of have a conversation and they've got a client side backup and at the end you stitch their client side backup to yours and it sounds like a conversation, you know? Um, <laughs> even though it's, you know, in the real time it's not. So there's not a whole lot of onboarding, frankly. I, reflecting on like you describing kind of the onboarding process, I think a lot of companies when they onboard to Uma's point, like people they've spent like a year trying to hire spend less time thinking about how to onboard kind of this new new kind of member well, of their team sure. than than you described to kind of onboarding to to your, to your podcast or, or equivalent amount of time <laughs> where they, they have like you know the, the right like uh, kind of sound canceling headphones for them to kind of go into the open office, but they don't have but and they have the equipment down, but kind of the, the rest of it they haven't thought about. I really do think one of the things that we've kind of iterated on here has been this just the onboarding process for engineers in particular. How do we get the time to making commits down as low as possible for kind of substantive commits? I think that's been a useful metric for us. But it, as all metrics, like the, the level of game ability is of course quite, quite high, right? You can always just add more simple changes. You can revert and reapply the same thing a couple of times. To kind of add to that point, I think there's another benefit to kind of like really using the onboarding, which is it's kind of like this unique time when you have like new hires starting at your company to actually really essentially like, you know, teach them about the company and its culture. And that's when everything that you teach them right at that initial like, you know, one to two week period is probably going to have a pretty high retention value. And then you can keep like reiterating that versus waiting too long to kind of like if there's things that are important that you want every new hire to know like that's your kind of like precious time to make sure that you really emphasize the message so uh earlier in my career i used to be witty and had like little like phrases that i thought were, were smart before i realized that they weren't um one of them one of them um is that when i was very early in my career i had this idea of like senior engineer sickness um, which is that kind of people would start to learn the wrong lessons and become kind of calcified in their beliefs. 
And this is kind of this like, ah, like this senior engineer is much smarter than I am, has, knows a lot more, but keeps doing this thing that's obviously wrong because they had this really bad experience six years ago where they kind of learned that they have to do this thing this way or this bad thing will happen to them. So it may be a question to all of us is, what is something that you know, knew was true early in your career, which you have later come to understand was actually a bad learning that you've tried to kind of unpack from, from the way that you, you operate? Uma, you first. Uh, this is a really interesting one because I feel like I've pretty much done this for everything that I thought that was early on in my career, which is I think the, sum the short summary is that uh, if I were to go back 10 years and be like, you know nothing, and I think that's like a really common theme, right, which is the, the more you know, the less confident you are in what you know. So I, I think I would, I would, I think one thing, for instance, is, and going back to the career narrative point, is I was very sure of things that I wanted to do. And I was very sure of things I did not want to do early on in my career. And some of the things I did not want to do was, I was like very determined, I will never be a manager. I don't like people. And here I am 10 years from now. So I think just like the big theme really is uh, kind of just acknowledging that we don't really know a lot and changing my mind about that. And now I'm far more open to the fact that I actually don't know what I will want to do in 10 years or what my interests will be or what tech as an industry will look like. Okay, I'm gonna give something very specific, which is uh, unit and integration tests. Um, I don't like writing tests. I don't want tests in my products. Uh, until it gets to a point where the product is very sophisticated. Like, I do want tests on Stripe. I hope you guys write tests. Um, <laughs> but, like, I remember in school, the, the way we would have a lot of projects structured is you would have to write these, it's like test-driven development, you start with the tests. And in retro, and like, that's how we learned. And I was like, why, why is this so painful and boring? Like, why is the way that we write software so painful and boring? And in retrospect, I realized it's because that process is terrible and outdated. If you're building a new piece of software, like you throw it together and like your way of testing it is you click around and like test out your cool new product that you built in Rails or whatever. And like, yeah, it breaks in certain ways, but you're probably not building soft, like, you know, flight testing software or, um, you know, mission critical static analysis testing software. So you generally just don't need automated tests. And so I think this whole, and, and you know, my exposure to enterprise Java applications, which were my first three jobs out of school, there was a lot of test writing. And I was like, wow, I guess, I guess this, this is just the way things have to be. Um, and then I, you know, started writing my own software and I started seeing how a lot of products are built, like kind of the Y Combinator school of thought or how, like how Facebook was built. Like Facebook made it very far without any tests. Um, and so, you know, that I just, I don't believe at all anymore. Uh, this, this, is, this is not mine, but it's something that someone told me at my first kind of tech job was that um, they had been writing a bunch of C++ and then they started writing PHP and their manager told them they could no longer write C++, they weren't allowed to. And so kind of they, they took this like very literally um, I, I think what had happened was they were not very effective writing C++. And once they started writing PHP, the, the manager was like, this is going well, I'll keep doing that. But the lesson they learned and, and gave to me was, 
never write PHP. It, it, will, it will cripple you because you'll never get to write the, the languages that you want to. And it was like interesting how this very bright, very thoughtful person had just like completely fixated on this like very specific thing and kind of framed this narrative around it, which like just didn't make any sense, but they were completely confident made sense. And I've just seen that happen kind of over and over and kind of getting the opportunity to break your beliefs periodically and, and rethink them from scratch, I think is quite, quite powerful. And I'm going to draft off that point. Um, somewhere in the industry narrative, PHP started getting uh, a really bad reputation. I don't know exactly how that happened or why that happened. I don't think I was deeply involved in software at the time when it started to, to develop a negative reputation. But, like, you look at the, the work Facebook has done on PHP and what Slack has done with PHP, and it's magnificent. So, and I, I don't know if that's due to newer tooling that was built on top of PHP, but I think it's an, it's an example of, like, when we have these really, really strong dogmatic belief systems, like somehow, somehow, I don't know, maybe, am I wrong? Or like PHP really has this just terrible reputation. I don't know why it materialized, but it's time to rethink that, obviously. As a, as a, but, as it, but we've gotten to a place in the industry where it's like we can't rethink it. Like people even, it, you know, the first comment on a, on a post about PHP on Hacker News is probably going to be PHP's terrible. You're doing it wrong, you know. When, um, when we were trying to get Dig acquired some years back, we were interviewing at a bunch of companies and trying to get a team acquired. It's like pretty interesting process, honestly. You go to a bunch of companies and you try to convince them to hire the entire group or as many as possible. I can remember we went to one like, well-known company using a language that is not like, particularly well-loved by the broader community who like, one of the engineers used Perl and they're like, well, no hire, used Perl. It was like, ah. Oh. And so the, this um, language snobism is, I think, like a, a, a real powerful thing that I've seen play out in ways that truly matter to people. And in this case, that company like, was no longer an option for us, kind of the acquisition. It's just kind of surreal to think about. It's just, it's just a programming language. I think that's, that's, this actually reminds me of something that I have actually changed my mind on that is very specific. So when I said earlier that I started working on C in my career, that that was mostly because I wanted to do systems programming because that was considered the cool, hard stuff. And I think one of the things that I have evolved significantly on is there is no such kind of, I think the snobbery around cool languages and cool technologies is something that I really believe strongly should not exist. Like everything is different levels of complexity and it's not like just because you're coding in the kernel, you are not doing somehow more important work than if you're building a world-class UI. Like there was definitely this kind of uh, snobbery that existed, which is the further down the stack you are, the more important you are in some way. I think that coupled with the snobbery around tools and languages, I think is something that I'm actually personally very happy to see has reduced in the industry. So we, we got a question from Jared, and the question is, you know, in what ways will engineering management be different in the next five to ten years? Um, I, this reminds me principally uh, of a Twitter DM I got recently from someone whose company is trying to get rid of terrible managers, by which they mean all managers. Um, and and I, hope, I hope that is not where the industry is going in the next five to ten years, that we, we, we uh, eliminate these these beastly boss individuals. Um, so not that. 
It is interesting. I think we've been doing a lot of work to try to get more metrics around around management. And I think we have more metrics, but none of around productivity, team health. Um, and I think the team health metrics seem to, to actually work, to actually create insight for sufficiently large organizations. And the productivity metrics seem to not work at all. And so I, I think we, we might actually be more data-driven a year or 10 years from now. We, we might actually have the average tenure of a manager would be higher um, if, if we stop um, you know, growing at quite this rate in the industry in a in more predictable way. But, but I don't know. I guess my, my best guess would be that if you look back 50 years, the, the work of engineering management 50 years ago, uh, if you read The Ghost in the Machine, I, I believe it's, uh, it's a great book about building an operating system uh, like 40 or 50 years ago. And, and it was like eerily familiar. So I think the, if you were placing money, I'd say that five, 10 years from now would be like almost identical, but hopefully um, getting a little bit more data-driven would be my, my dream. I think the trend that I've seen, uh, kind of reflecting back on managers I have had and expectations that have been from like on me in, in my career over like the last decade has been the, definitely the shift towards more data-driven, but also I think an actual emphasis on the people aspect of of engineering management. When I first started, the the emphasis was very much on the managers kind of essentially being the driving force for the execution of the teams. And that still actually exists in companies that are kind of like, you know, of an older era. And you can see the shift in most tech companies that were that are newer has really shifted to an emphasis on people and because the we have really actually kind of now understood that that's actually what makes people productive is actually caring about people and understanding how teams function and the dynamics of the people. And I think my, my intuition is that that will actually increase. So while there will be a data-driven fact, actually taking more time to understand the people element will actually improve. Uma took the words out of my mouth. Um, to, to put another spin on it, uh, I think we are in a uh, explosion of tooling right now, and people uh, there's a lot of confusion around best practices and uh, data management of tasks and how are we doing issue tracking and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think over the next five to ten years, we're going to figure out a lot of that, and the the mechanisms by which information propagates through an organization are going to get really, really good, and we're going to have pretty good centralized dashboards and task boards and stuff. And people are going to have a pretty good idea of what to work on and how they can um, contribute to an organization. And, and so, you know, we will be able to move away from the manager as like the, the, the task driver, the like, hey, stay on your thing, like whatever. Everybody's going to have visibility into what other people are doing. And so we're all going to know like what, who is actually delivering, you know, what's, what should we be working on? It's like data. It's going to be data driven. The data is going to be in a in a very visible format, a very beautiful format that's easy to read, and so the manager really will be more focused on these emotional issues and these uh, questions of reflection. And you know the you know the one on ones may be more frequent, right? Because and I think they'll be more based around. Uh, they won't as much be rooted in. Like I think I think. I can't remember if we talked about this, but like the the uh, that book, The Alliance by Reed Hoffman, is is a really special management book from my point of view because it um, it 
it takes the company-centric approach to management out of the equation and becomes more of a human-to-human relationship and it becomes more of, hey, you're Will, you happen to work at Stripe right now. I'm Jeff, I happen to work at Software Engineering Daily right now. Really, our relationship is more about building a long-term alliance. Um, and, you know, like, what are you really thinking about? Like, what do you want to do with your career? What's your life like? You know, like, what do you do outside of work? And, and how does that, how can we make that concordant with what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis here? Um, so yeah, I think the emotional questions will become much more important because the manager will be more of a coach. Like, are you feeling emotionally healthy today? Because we need you, we need all of you, you know, to be happy in order to bring your best to the work. To work. So ch challenging these ideas a little bit. I think um, six or seven years ago, I was having a discussion with one of my friends who's a product manager. He's like, you know, it's it's much harder to get hired as a product manager right now because you can't get hired as a product manager without a computer science degree anymore because Google started doing it and Google's successful, so now everyone hires the way that the Google started doing it. And so I think probably a, another way to think about where we are five to ten years in the future is what are the most popular companies today? What are their approaches to the definition of management? And probably we as an industry will start fast following those approaches. Um, interestingly, though, when you think about like the, the product management hiring for computer science degrees or when you think about like programming languages that a company, a popular company uses, those tend to be much more obvious from the outside versus kind of thinking about what is Facebook's engineering management philosophy. And I think I've, I've spoken with enough folks there that I think I understand what that is, but it's much harder for the industry at large to fast follow some of these like more uh, amorphous ideas. Do you kind of add another thing there? I think the way teams are going to be constructed is going to be is going to look very different distributed teams are going to be much more popular and like out of necessity and so i think the task of managers is also going to look very different because of all other things that are going to change around them so you will no longer be managing a team that sits entirely on the same floor as you and where you can walk over kind of office space style and you know ask for a tps report you will be working with someone in a different time zone so last, maybe last questions for, for, for both of you. Um, positions on two exciting, exciting things. Uh, 10 years from now, open offices. What's the state of open offices? And 10 years from now, what's the state of kind of remote? First. Uh, I think distributed work is going to be the future. I think, the, I think there'll be, for both, both things, I think uh, growth will be a significant factor in to how both of these plan out. So if we continue with tech continuing to grow and expand at the same trajectory that it has over the last decade, then I think uh, out of necessity, we will have far more distributed teams and we will move to a model of open offices will continue to be the norm. But I think everyone's desire for the open office structure, and maybe I'm like biasing too, too much towards myself, is that no one actually really loves them. That's like one of my kind of pet peeves. I think if it were not necessity, then I think we would actually move back to the model where like similar to Microsoft or a lot of other large companies had where people at a maximum shared offices or did not have that. I think maybe the intersection is actually distributed work where you are actually, you have your own office and that just happens to be your home. So I'm definitely not the best person to ask because my last four years, like first of all, the first two years of Software Engineering Daily were basically like 
18 hours a day in, in my apartment, or I mean longer than 18 hours a day. Mo I was in my apartment, right? Like I was a disembodied voice on the internet. I did not spend a lot of time interacting with other people. Um, and it was not exactly healthy. It was extremely productive for me uh, relative to my experience working in a corporation where I was not ever productive in the office. Like the environment didn't work for me. Like the distract so distractions didn't work for me. The periodic meetings, I was just like, this is like, this. I'm not productive here. This doesn't make any sense. But at the same time, over the last four years, I have spent way too much time in isolation. It's just, it's not healthy. Uh, I love remote work for productivity, but you go down these like mental rabbit holes that are like not good. You know, humans are not meant to spend that much time in isolation. Uh, so, you know, and open offices are great for like, reducing that so i kind of agree with you like we're gonna have the like the microsoft model where you have your private office you can go into your office and do your work i think we'll have we'll have fewer meetings also for the same reason that like we'll have the more emphasis on the, the coaching of the coach manager um because like we're gonna know what we're doing like okay we don't need to meet about this thing like look at the dashboard look at the tasks it's pretty obvious what we should be doing we don't need to go and litigate this for an hour um so yeah i think uh you know remote work for productivity open offices for sanity um you know closed door offices for uh a blend of the two and I think that that's going to be the end. I'm just definitely going to skip answering my own questions because that, that's the, uh, the joy of asking them. Okay, well, final question for you. Um, book format versus podcast format. So at one point in, in the, the history of, of, of mankind, um, books were a normal thing that people read. And you might go to this place that was filled with books. It has a door, and it was like renowned as a bookstore. Um, and therein, there would be a curated selection of books that you would purchase, or perhaps there was a book you wanted, and you go to many of them to, to try to find this kind of tome. Um, I think something I've realized is like a lot of people don't buy books anymore, and I think it's always been true that a lot of people don't read books. Um, but there's still, uh, conversely, a, a lot of people have bought. The, the, the book that I wrote, which is surprising and I'm appreciative for. Um, conversely, I think, you know, at times memorial podcasts were super weird and no one listened to podcasts, but that's like totally not true anymore. Like podcasts are like financially seems to be the best ecosystem for creating content now. It seems to far surpass like books, blogs, etc. They seem to be the only ecosystem that actually makes money um, from a content perspective. I think Personally, I, I've never found my groove with podcasts, but I think it's clear to me podcasts are going to continue to grow and that books are continue to shrink as like a medium that people consume. And I think we have to like come to terms with that. And that's, that's a wrap. So thank you all for asking and listening. And we'll try this again sometime, probably. <laughs>